Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Third part of Chapter 84, Taboo Trade-Offs, Aftermath 2. The stars hadn't quite come out yet, only one or two of the brightest ones visible through the reddish-purple haze of the horizon, though the sun had fully sunk. Hermione's hands dug into the harsh stone of the parapet guarding the small balcony, where she ducked out of the stairwell after realizing that she couldn't just go back to bed. The words echoed in her mind like, you can't go home again, ought to sound. She stared out at the empty grounds, the fading sunset, the sprouting grass so far below. Tired. She was tired. She couldn't think now. She needed to sleep. Professor Flitwick had told her that she needed to sleep, and there'd been yet another potion with her dinner. Maybe that was how Wizarding Society treated horrible traumas to innocent young girls. Just made them sleep a lot afterward. She should go to her room and sleep, but she was afraid to go someplace where other people were, afraid of how they might look at her, or look away. Fragments of thoughts chased themselves around a mind too exhausted to finish or connect them as the night fully set in. Why? Why did all this happen? Everything was fine a week ago. Why? From behind her came the creaky sound of an opening door. She turned her head and looked. Professor Quirrell was leaning against the doorway she'd walked through, silhouetted like a cardboard cutout by the light of the Hogwarts torches lit behind him in the open door. She couldn't see his expression, though the doorway behind him was bright. His eyes, his face, everything she could see from here lay within night's shadow. The defense professor of Hogwarts. Number one on the list of people who might have done this. She hadn't even realized she had a suspect list until that moment. The man stood within that doorway, saying nothing, and she couldn't see his eyes. What was he even doing there in the first place? Are you here to kill me? said Hermione Granger. Professor Quirrell's head tilted at that. Then, the defense professor started toward her, the dark silhouette raising one hand slowly and deliberately, as though to push her off the Ravenclaw Tower. Stupefy! The burst of adrenaline overrode everything. She drew her wand without thinking. Her lips formed the word of their own accord. The stun bolt leapt out of her wand and... slowed to a stop in front of Professor Quirrell's raised hand, rippling in midair like it was still trying to fly and making a slight hissing sound. The red glow illuminated Professor Quirrell's face for the first time, showing a strange, fond smile. Better, said Professor Quirrell. Miss Granger, you are still a student in my defense class. As such, if you consider me a threat, I do not expect you to just look at me sadly and ask if I am there to kill you. Minus two Quirrell points. She was entirely unable to form words. The defense professor flicked his forefinger casually at the suspended stun bolt, sending the hex shooting back over her head far into the night so that they stood again in darkness. 
Then Professor Quirrell walked out of the doorway, which swung shut behind him, and a soft white light sprung up around the two of them so that she could see his face once more, still with that strange, fond smile. What are you... what are you doing here? A few more steps took Professor Quirrell to a higher part of the balcony's ramparts, where he put his elbows down on the stone and leaned over heavily, looking up into the night. I came here straight upon being released by the Aurors the moment I finished reporting to the headmaster because I am your teacher and you are my student and I am responsible for you. Hermione understood then, remembering what Professor Quirrell had said to Harry in the second defense lesson of the year about controlling his anger. She felt the flush of shame all the way down her chest. It took a moment after that for knowledge to override mortification for her to force out the words. I... Harry thinks that I didn't lose my temper. So I heard, said Professor Quirrell in rather dry tones. He shook his head as though at the stars themselves. The boy is fortunate that I have crossed the line from annoyance with his self-destructiveness into sheer curiosity as to what he shall do next but I agree with Mr. Potter's assessment of the facts. This murder was well planned to evade detection both by the wards of Hogwarts and the headmaster's timely eye. Naturally, in such a thoughtful murder, some innocent would be placed to take the blame. A brief, wry smile crossed the defense professor's lips, though he wasn't looking at her. As for the notion that you did it yourself, I consider myself a talented teacher, but even I could not teach such murderous intent to a student as obstinate and untalented as Hermione Granger. The part of her brain that said, What? in indignation wasn't anywhere near loud enough to reach her lips. No, that is not why I am here. You have made no effort to hide your dislike for me, Miss Granger. I thank you for that lack of pretense, for I much prefer true hatred to false love. But you are still my student, and I have a word to say to you, if you will hear it. Hermione looked at him, still fighting down the after-effects of the adrenaline from before. The defense professor seemed to be just staring up at the dark sky, in which the stars were becoming visible. I was going to be a hero, once. Can you believe that, Miss Granger? No. Thank you again, Miss Granger. It is true nonetheless. Long ago, long before your time or Harry Potter's, there was a man who was hailed as a savior, the destined scion, such a one as anyone would recognize from tales, wielding justice and vengeance like twin wands against his dreadful nemesis. Professor Quirrell gave a soft, bitter laugh, looking up at the night sky. Do you know, Miss Granger... At that time, I thought myself already cynical. And yet... Well... The silence stretched in the cold and the night. In all honesty, said Professor Quirrell, looking up at the stars, I still don't understand it. They should have known that their lives depended on that man's success. And yet, it was as if they tried to do everything they could to make his life unpleasant to throw every possible obstacle into his way. I was not naive, Miss Granger, 
I did not expect the power holders to align themselves with me so quickly, not without something in it for themselves. But their power, too, was threatened. And so I was shocked how they seemed content to step back and leave to that man all burdens of responsibility. They sneered at his performance, remarking among themselves how they would do better in his place, though they did not condescend to step forward. Professor Quirrell shook his head as though in bemusement. And it was the strangest thing. The dark wizard, that man's dread nemesis. Why, those who served him leapt eagerly to their tasks. The dark wizard grew crueler toward his followers, and they followed him all the more. Men fought for the chance to serve him, even as those whose lives depended on that other man made free to render his life difficult. I could not understand it, Miss Granger. Professor Quirrell's face was in shadow as he looked upward. Perhaps, by taking on himself the curse of action, that man removed it from all others? Was that why they felt free to hinder his battle against the dark wizard who would have enslaved them all? Believing men would act in their own interest was not cynicism, it turned out, but sheerest optimism. In reality, men do not meet so high a standard. And so in time, that one realized he might do better fighting the Dark Wizard alone than with such followers at his back. So... Hermione's voice sounded strange in the night. You left your friends behind where they'd be safe and tried to attack the Dark Wizard all by yourself. Why no? I stopped trying to be a hero and went off to do something else I found more pleasant. What? said Hermione without thinking at all. That's horrible! The defense professor turned his head down from the sky to regard her, and she saw, in the light of the doorway, that he was smiling, or at least half his face was smiling. Are you going to tell me, Miss Granger, that I am an awful person? Well, perhaps I am. But then are people who never even try to be heroes still worse? If I had never done anything at all, like them, would you have thought better of me? Hermione opened her mouth and then found that, once again, she didn't have anything to say. It wasn't right to walk away from being a hero. You couldn't just do that. But she didn't want to say that everyone who wasn't a hero was nothing. That was quarrel thinking. The smile, or half-smile, had disappeared. You were foolish to expect any lasting gratitude from those you tried to protect once you named yourself a heroine. Just as you expected that man to go on being a hero and called him horrible for stopping when a thousand others never lifted a finger. It was only expected that you should fight bullies. It was a tax you owed, and they accepted it like princes, with a sneer for the lateness of your payment. And you have already witnessed, I wager, that their fondness vanished like dust in the wind once it was no longer in their interest to associate with you. The defense professor slowly straightened off the balcony, standing almost straight, turning to regard her fully. But you don't have to be a hero, Miss Granger. You can stop any time you please. That idea had occurred to her before, 
several times over the last two days. People become who they are meant to be by doing what is right. Headmaster Dumbledore had told her. The trouble was that there seemed to be two different right things to do. There was the part of her which said that right was to go on being a heroine and stay at Hogwarts. She didn't know what was going on, but a heroine wouldn't just run away. And there was also the voice of common sense, saying that young children shouldn't ever stay around danger. That was what adults were for. The voice of every school poster that said not to take candy from strangers. That was also right. Hermione Granger stood there on that balcony, looking at Professor Quirrell silhouetted by the emerging stars, and she didn't understand. She didn't understand how the defense professor could be gazing at her with his face showing concern. She didn't understand the notes of pain in the defense professor's voice that caught at her. She didn't understand why she was being told all this. You don't even like me, Professor. A small smile flickered on Professor Quirrell's face. I suppose I could go on about how I am angered that this affair has taken up my valuable time and disrupted my defense classes. But mostly, Miss Granger, you are my student, and whatever other professions I may have once held, I think I have been a good teacher at Hogwarts, have I not? Suddenly, Professor Quirrell's eyes seemed very tired. As your teacher, then... I am advising you that you have other career options. I should not like to see anyone else going down my path. Hermione swallowed. It was a side of Professor Quirrell she'd never seen or imagined, and it was eating away at her preconceptions. Professor Quirrell watched her for a moment, and then looked away from her again, back up at the stars. When he spoke this time, his voice was quieter. Someone here is targeting you, Miss Granger, and I cannot ward you like I warded Mr. Malfoy. The headmaster has prevented it, for what he claims to be good reasons. It is easy to become fond of Hogwarts, I know, for I am fond of it as well. But in France they take a different view of the ancient houses than in Britain, and Beaubatons would not mistreat you, I think. Whatever else you imagine of me, I swear that if you ask me to see you safely in Beaubaton, I would do all in my power to convey you there. I can't just... But you can, Miss Granger. Now the pale blue eyes watched her intently. Whatever you wish to make of your life, you cannot attain it at Hogwarts. Not anymore. This place is ruined for you now, even leaving aside all other threats. Simply ask Harry Potter to command you to go to Bobatons and live out your life in peace. If you stay here, he is your master in the eyes of Britain and its laws. She hadn't even been thinking about that. It paled so much in comparison to being eaten by Dementors. It had been important to her before, but now it all seemed childish, unimportant, pointless. So why were her eyes burning? And if that fails to move you, Miss Granger, consider also that Mr. Potter has, just today at lunchtime, threatened Lucius Malfoy, Albus Dumbledore, and the entire Wizengamot because he cannot think sensibly when something threatens to take you from him. Are you not frightened of what he will do next? 
It made sense. Terrible sense. Dreadful, awful sense. It made too much sense. She couldn't have described it in words what triggered the realization, unless it was the sheer pressure that the defense professor was exerting on her. That, if the defense professor was behind this whole thing, then Professor Quirrell had done it all just to get her out of the way of his plans for Harry. Without any conscious decision, she shifted her weight to the other foot, her body moving away from the defense professor. So you think I am the one responsible, said Professor Quirrell. His voice sounded a little sad as he said it, and her own heart almost stopped from hearing it. I suppose I cannot blame you. I am the defense professor of Hogwarts, after all. But, Miss Granger, even assuming that I am your enemy, common sense should still tell you to get away from me very quickly. You cannot use the killing curse, so the correct tactic is to apparate away. I do not mind being the villain of your imagination, if that makes matters clearer. Leave Hogwarts, and leave me to those who can handle me. I will arrange for the transportation to be through some family of good repute, and Mr. Potter will know to blame me if you do not arrive safely. I... She was feeling cold, the night air chilling her skin, or maybe being chilled by it. I've got to think about it. Professor Quirrell shook his head. No, Miss Granger. Your departure will take time for me to arrange, and I have less time left than you may think. This decision may be painful for you, but it should not be ambiguous. Much weighs in the balance of these scales, but not evenly. I must know tonight whether you intend to go. And if not... Was the defense professor warning her deliberately? That if she didn't run, he would strike again? Why would it matter so much? What did Professor Quirrell want to do with Harry? Hermione Granger, I shall be less subtle than is usual for a mysterious old wizard, and tell you outright that you cannot imagine how badly things could go if the events surrounding Harry Potter turn ill. The most powerful wizard in the world had told her that when he was talking about how important it was that she not stop being Harry's friend. Hermione swallowed. She swayed a little where she stood, on the stone balcony of a magic castle. Suddenly, the whole deadly absurdity of the situation seemed to rise up and grab her by the throat. That twelve-year-old girls shouldn't be in danger, shouldn't be thinking about such things. And Mum would want her to run away and her father would have a heart attack if he even knew she was being faced with the question. And she knew, then, as Harry and Dumbledore had both tried to warn her, that everything she'd ever thought about being a heroine had been mistaken, that there wasn't really any such thing as heroes outside of stories. There was just horrible danger, and being arrested by Aurors and put in cells next to Dementors. Pain and fear and... Miss Granger? She said nothing. All the words were blocked in her throat. I need a decision, Miss Granger. She kept her jaw locked and didn't let any words come out. Finally, the defense professor sighed. 
Slowly the white light failed, and slowly the door behind him swung open, so that he was once again a black silhouette against the opening. Good night, Miss Granger, he said, and turned his back to her, and walked away into Hogwarts. It took a while for her breathing to slow down again. Whatever had happened here tonight, it didn't feel anything like victory. She'd fought so hard just to stop herself from saying yes in the face of the defense professor's pressure. And now she didn't even know if she'd done the right thing. When she walked back into the light herself, after exhaustion had overtaken everything and sleep was once more a possibility, she thought she heard it as she was within the doorway, from behind her and above her, a distant, cawing cry. But it wasn't meant for her, she knew, so she started climbing up the stairs toward her dorm room. The other girls were probably asleep by now and wouldn't look at her or look away. She felt the tears start, and this time she didn't stop them. End Chapter 84 Chapter 85 Taboo Trade-Offs Aftermath 3 Distance Slow and hard, the long stairway that led to the peak of Ravenclaw. From the inside, the stairway seemed like a straight upward slope, though from the outside you could see that it logically had to be a spiral. You could only get to the top of the Ravenclaw Tower by making that long climb without shortcuts. Stone step by stone step, passing beneath Harry's shoes, pushed down by his wearying legs. Harry had seen Hermione safely off to bed. He had lingered in the Ravenclaw common room long enough to collect a few signatures that might be useful to Hermione later. Not many students had signed. Wizards hadn't been trained to think in the put-up-or-shut-up, stick-your-neck-out-and-make-a-prediction-or-stop-pretending-to-believe-in-your-theory rules of muggle science. Most of them hadn't seen anything incongruent about being too nervous to sign an agreement saying that Hermione got to hold it over them for the rest of their lives if they were wrong, while acting outwardly confident that she was guilty. But just having demanded the signatures would make the point after the truth came out, if anyone ever again suspected Hermione of anything dark. She wouldn't have to go through this twice, at least. After that, Harry had left the common room quickly, because all the kindly forgiving sentiments he'd reasoned out were getting harder and harder to remember. Sometimes, Harry thought the deepest split in his personality wasn't anything to do with his dark side. Rather, it was the divide between the altruistic and forgiving, abstract reasoning Harry versus the frustrated and angry Harry in the moment. The circular platform at the top of the Ravenclaw Tower wasn't the tallest place in Hogwarts, but the Ravenclaw Tower jutted out from the main body of the castle so you couldn't see down into the top platform from the Astronomy Tower. A quiet place to think, if you had an awful lot to think about. A place where few other students ever came. There were easier niches of privacy, if privacy was all you wanted. The nightlit torches of Hogwarts were far below. The platform itself offered few obstructions. The stairs emerged from an uncovered gap in the floor rather than an upright door. From this place, then, the stars were as visible as they ever were on Earth. The boy lay down in the center of the platform, 
heedless of his robes that might be dirtied, dropping his head to rest upon the rock-tiled floor, so that, except for a few half-seen crenellations of stone at Vision's edge and a silver of crescent moon, reality became starlight. The pinpoints of light in dark velvet twinkled, wavering and returning, a different kind of beauty from their steady brilliance in the silent night. Harry gazed out abstractedly, his mind on other things. This day your war against Voldemort has begun. Dumbledore had said that, after the incident with rescuing Bellatrix from Azkaban. That had been a false alarm, but the phrase expressed the sentiment well. Two nights ago, his war had begun, and Harry didn't know with who. Dumbledore thought it was Lord Voldemort returned from the dead making his first move against the boy who had defeated him last time. Professor Quirrell had put detection wards on Draco, fearing that Hogwarts' mad headmaster would try to frame Harry for the death of Lucius's son. Or Professor Quirrell had set up the entire thing, and that was how he'd known where to find Draco. Severus Snape thought the Hogwarts defense professor was an obvious suspect. Even THE obvious suspect and Severus Snape himself might or might not be even remotely trustworthy. Someone had declared war against Harry. Their first strike had been meant to take out Draco and Hermione both, and it was only by the barest of margins that Harry had saved Hermione. You couldn't call it victory. Draco had been removed from Hogwarts, and if that wasn't death, it wasn't clear how it could be undone, or what shape Draco might be in when he got back. The country of Magical Britain now thought Hermione an attempted murderer, which might or might not make her decide to do the same thing and leave. Harry had sacrificed his entire fortune to undo his loss, and that card could only be played once. Some unknown power had struck at him, and if that blow had been partially deflected, it had still hit really hard. At least his dark side hadn't asked anything of him in exchange for saving Hermione. Maybe because his dark side wasn't an imaginary voice like Hufflepuff. Harry might imagine his Hufflepuff part as wanting different things from himself, but his dark side wasn't like that. His dark side, so far as Harry could tell, was a different way that Harry sometimes was. Right now, Harry wasn't angry, and trying to ask what Dark Harry wanted was a phone ringing unanswered. The thought even seemed a little strange. How could you owe something to a different way you sometimes were? Harry stared up at the random stars, the scattered twinkling lights that human brains couldn't help but pattern match into imaginary constellations. And then there was that promise Harry had sworn. Draco to help Harry reform Slytherin House. And Harry to take as an enemy whomever Harry believed, in his best judgment as a rationalist, to have killed Narcissa Malfoy. If Narcissa had never gotten her own hands dirty, if indeed she'd been burned alive, if the killer hadn't been tricked, those were all the conditions Harry could remember making. He probably should have written it down, or better yet, never made a promise requiring that many caveats in the first place. There were some plausible outs for the sort of person who'd let themselves rationalize an out. Dumbledore hadn't actually confessed. He hadn't come right out and said he'd done it. There were plausible reasons for an actually guilty Dumbledore to behave that way, 
But it was also what you'd expect to see if someone else had burned Narcissa and Dumbledore had taken credit. Harry shook his head, flattening one side of his hair and then another against the stone-tiled floor. There was still a final out. Draco could still release him from the oath at any time. He could, at least, describe the situation to Draco and talk about options with him when they met again. It didn't seem like a very likely prospect for release, but the idea of talking something over honestly was enough to satisfy the part of himself that demanded adherence to oaths. Even if it only meant delaying, it was better than taking a good man as an enemy. But is Dumbledore a good man? asked the voice of Hufflepuff. If Dumbledore burned someone alive, wasn't the whole point that good people may kill, but never kill with suffering? Maybe he killed her instantly, said Slytherin, and then lied to Lucius about the burning alive part. But if there was any possibility of the Death Eaters magically verifying how Narcissa died, and if being caught in a lie would have endangered Lightside families... Be careful what we cleverly rationalize, warned Gryffindor. You have to expect reputational effects on how other people treat you, said Hufflepuff. If you decide there's sufficient reason to burn a woman alive, one of the predictable side effects is that good people decide you've crossed the line and have to be stopped. Dumbledore should have expected that. He's got no right to complain. Or maybe he expects us to be smarter, said Slytherin. Now that we know this much of the truth, no matter the exact details of the full story, can we really believe that Dumbledore is a terrible, terrible person who ought to be our enemy? In the middle of a horrible, bloody war, Dumbledore set one enemy civilian on fire? That's only bad by the standards of comic books not by any sort of realistic historical standard. Harry stared up at the night sky, remembering history. In real life, in real wars. During World War II, there had been a project to sabotage the Nazi nuclear weapons program. Years earlier, Leo Szilard, the first person to realize the possibility of a fission chain reaction, had convinced Fermi not to publish the discovery that purified graphite was a cheap and effective neutron moderator. Fermi had wanted to publish, for the sake of the great international project of science, which was above nationalism. But Szilard had persuaded Rabbi, and Fermi had abided by the majority vote of their tiny three-person conspiracy. And so, years later, the only neutron moderator the Nazis had known about was deuterium. The only deuterium source under Nazi control had been a captured facility in occupied Norway, which had been knocked out by bombs and sabotage, causing a total of 24 civilian deaths. The Nazis had tried to ship the deuterium already refined to Germany aboard a civilian Norwegian ferry, the SS Hydro. Newt Hockelid and his assistants had been discovered by the night watchmen of the civilian ferry while they were sneaking on board to sabotage it. Hockelid had told the watchmen that they were escaping the Gestapo, and the watchmen had let them go. Hockelid had considered warning the night watchmen, but that would have endangered the mission, so Hockelid had only shaken his hand. And the civilian ship had sunk in the deepest part of the lake, with eight dead Germans, seven dead crew, 
and three dead civilian bystanders. Some of the Norwegian rescuers of the ship had thought the German soldiers present should be left to drown, but this view had not prevailed and the German survivors had been rescued. And that had been the end of the Nazi nuclear weapons program. Which was to say that Newt Hockelid had killed innocent people, one of whom, the night watchman of the ship, had been a good person, someone who'd gone out of his way to help Hockelid at risk to himself from the kindness of his heart for the highest moral reasons, and been sent to drown in return. Afterward, in the cold light of history, it had looked like the Nazis had never been close to getting a nuclear weapon after all. And Harry had never read anything suggesting that Hockelid had acted wrongly. That was war in real life. In terms of total damage and who'd gotten hit, what Hockelid had done was considerably worse than what Dumbledore might have done to Narcissa Malfoy or what Dumbledore had possibly done to leak the prophecy to Lord Voldemort to get him to attack Harry's parents. If Hocklet had been a comic book superhero, he'd have somehow gotten all the civilians off the ferry. He would have attacked the German soldiers directly, rather than let a single innocent person die. But Newt Hocklet hadn't been a superhero. And neither had been Albus Dumbledore. Harry closed his eyes, swallowing hard a few times against the sudden choking sensation. It was abruptly very clear that while Harry was going around trying to live the ideals of the Enlightenment, Dumbledore was the one who'd actually fought in a war. Nonviolent ideals were cheap to hold if you were a scientist, living inside the Protego bubble cast by the police officers and soldiers whose actions you had the luxury to question. Albus Dumbledore seemed to have started out with ideals at least as strong as Harry's own, if not stronger. And Dumbledore hadn't gotten through his war without killing enemies and sacrificing friends. Are you so much better than Hockelid and Dumbledore, Harry Potter, that you'll be able to fight without a single casualty? Even in the world of comic books, the only reason a superhero like Batman even looks successful is that comic book readers only notice when important named characters die, not when the Joker shoots some random nameless bystander to show off his villainy. Batman is a murderer no less than the Joker, for all the lives the Joker took that Batman could have saved by killing him. That's what the man named Alistor was trying to tell Dumbledore. And afterward, Dumbledore regretted having taken so long to change his mind. Are you really going to try to follow the path of the superhero and never sacrifice a single piece or kill a single enemy? End first half of chapter 85 Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Dumbledore, Drake Walker. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. 
Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion to Chapter 85, Taboo Trade-Offs, Aftermath 3, Distance.